Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This first episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, It Begins. The best place to start is at the beginning. But with church history, where is that? Where do we begin? Most modern Christians would probably start with Jesus, and that seems pretty straightforward. But where would the first Christians have begun? They were Jews, and considered what they believed as a purified form of Judaism, a faith that Moses would have approved of. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-hoped-for and oft-prophesied Savior, who came to restore the faith that God had revealed to Abraham 2,000 years before. So, where would Peter, Andrew, John, James, or Thomas have begun telling the story? The Apostle John begins his story of Jesus at creation with the words, in the beginning. We'll come up in time considerably and start with a man known as Jesus of Nazareth, engaged in his public ministry, traveling through northern Israel with a dozen disciples. At that time, the first century of what modern historians like to call the Common Era, Israel was an uneasy part of the Roman Empire. Unlike some provinces that counted being part of Rome a privilege, Israel loathed their Roman occupiers. Most Jews resisted more than just political domination by a foreign power. They also despised the Greek culture the Romans had brought with them. All this stirred the pot of popular expectation among Jews for the arrival of the Messiah, who they anticipated would be primarily a political figure. Scripture foretold that he'd replace corruption with paradise, the wicked would be punished, the righteous rewarded, and Israel exalted among the nations. Messiah would restore David's throne and rule over the affairs of earth. Some prophets spoke of a war between good and evil that would resolve in the Messiah's victory. This flavored the anticipation of many. They cast Rome as the chief adversary that the Messiah would crush. By the first century, different groups had developed around their belief in what was the right way to prepare for this political Messiah. The Pharisees devoted themselves to the law of Moses and religious tradition. The Essenes took a segregationist approach, pursuing holiness by moving to isolated communes to await Messiah's arrival. Zealots advocated armed resistance against Rome as well as those Jews who collaborated with the hated enemy. Zealots drew their inspiration from the successful Maccabean revolt against the Syrian Greeks a couple hundred years before. A fourth group were the Sadducees, who took a more pragmatic approach to the Roman presence and accommodated themselves to the Greco-Roman culture that they were convinced would eventually become the status quo. Sadducees were a minority, but held most of the positions of political and religious leadership in Jerusalem. The last and by far largest group among the Jews of the first century is rarely mentioned. That is, the common people. They were neither Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene, or Zealot. They were just Jews, everyday people in covenant with God, but preoccupied with fields, flocks, trades, markets, family, and, well, life, the daily grind. They held opinions regarding politics and religion, but were too busy surviving to join one of the groups that claimed superiority to the others. It was these commoners who were most attracted to Jesus. They were drawn to him because he did a masterful job of refusing to be co-opted by the elites. 
Jesus came in the traditional mode of a rabbi, but was anything but traditional. Like other rabbis, he had disciples who followed him, but his teaching stood in contrast to theirs. His words carried authority that challenged the thick, hard shell of tradition that had become encrusted round their religion. Listening to Jesus wasn't like listening to a commentary on Torah, which so many other teachers did sound like. Listening to Jesus was like listening to Moses himself, explaining what the law was meant to be and do. Then Jesus did something that really made people pay attention. He validated his teaching by performing miracles, and not a few. He did many. It was a tough assignment to carve a path through Jewish society that didn't intersect with the Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, or Sadducees. But Jesus negotiated it perfectly. Both his life and teaching powerfully demonstrated genuine Judaism and revealed the shabby counterfeit of the religious pretenders. At first, they tried to co-opt him and turn his rising popularity to their agenda. When he refused to make common cause with them, they turned on him. Jesus furthermore resisted the efforts of the common people to make him a king. Their hope that he was Messiah swelled to the call that he claim Israel's throne. They wanted a political leader, but that was not Jesus' mission, and he resisted their attempts to install him as a monarch. Jesus' consistent message was the true nature of the kingdom of God. Contemporary Judaism saw that kingdom as primarily political, military, and economic, a realm in which Israel would rule instead of Rome, Messiah would reign in place of Caesar, Judaism would replace paganism, and the sandal would finally be on the other foot. Jesus' message was a much different take on the kingdom. It wasn't about politics or economics. It was about the heart, the inner life. Jesus repeatedly emphasized that to be in covenant with God meant to be in an intimate relationship with him, not as some distant, disinterested deity, but as a loving father. Jesus' popularity with the commoners created jealousy on the part of the leaders. His unblemished example of a warm and endearing godliness revealed the pathetic shabbiness of the merely religious. When he cleared the temple of the fraudulent marketplace that the leaders used as a source of income, well, they decided that it was time to get rid of him. They convinced themselves that they were only protecting the nation from Rome's wrath against the insurrection they claimed that Jesus was sure to lead. They arrested him, ran him through a sham trial, then turned him over to the Romans for execution, saying that he encouraged rebellion, a charge that Rome took quite seriously. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, knew that he was being played by the Jewish leaders, but when they threatened to complain to Rome, already being on thin ice with the emperor, Pilate relented and turned Jesus over for scourging and crucifixion. As they turned away from Jesus' cross late Friday afternoon, they thought, good riddance, at least we won't have to worry about him anymore. Yeah, good luck with that. Chapter 1 of Bruce Shelley's excellent book, Church History in Plain Language, begins with this line. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Anyone who's decided to investigate the history of the Christian church has probably wondered at the astounding success of the faith in light of its central event and the belief that flows from it. 
An interview with the disciples the day after the crucifixion would in no way give anyone the idea that Christianity would one day spread to the ends of the world and number in the billions. The transformation that took place among Jesus' followers after his resurrection is convincing proof of his rising from the tomb. The disappointment that marked Jesus' followers immediately after his execution is understandable. What isn't is their amazing resurgence to carry on his mission. The only rational explanation for their continuation and the growth of the Jesus movement was the resurrection. By the first century, Judaism had infiltrated much of the Roman Empire and had a small number of converts among Gentiles in many cities. But these God-fearers, as they were called, were a tiny number considering how long Judaism had existed. The Jews had never embarked on a campaign to spread their faith. Gentile converts to Judaism were almost accidental and accommodated in the synagogue reluctantly. Yet within a century after the resurrection, Christianity had spread across the entire empire. The miraculous growth of the church stands as eloquent testimony to its miraculous origin. And now for a little background on the Communio Sanctorum podcast. What you're hearing is a third version of season one of Communio Sanctorum. The number of subscribers has grown tremendously, with many saying that they've listened to the episodes multiple times. Version two contains some material that was time-sensitive. News about the podcast awards, a Reformation tour, and such like that. Things that are no longer applicable. I thought it best to redo the series, omitting all of that. The CS website is also being updated, and a Spanish version is being produced. And so it seemed an apropos time to re-record Season 1 with a refresh of the content. I got turned on to the genius of podcasting a few years ago. Being a history nut, I went looking for my favorite subject, Rome, and found Mike Duncan's brilliant podcast series called The History of Rome. Then, hooked, I next devoured Lars Brownworth's Twelve Byzantine Emperors and the Norman Centuries. After that, I went in search of a similar format podcast on church history. I was looking for short episodes, easily listened to while working out or going for a run, working in the yard. But all I could find at that time were long lectures, mostly given in a college or a seminary. And while the content was solid, they weren't all that interesting. What I was looking for were episodes of between 15 and 20 minutes that would break church history up into easily digested sessions. Not finding it, (laughs) I decided to do it. So let me be clear, I'm not an historian, not even close. I love history and am a student of it. An historian is someone with access to and does research on primary level materials. An historian is someone who gains familiarity with the past because she or he has interacted in some way with those who made history, and if not them directly, then with the records and artifacts that they left behind. All that I can do is take the work of real historians, call it, repackage it, and then put it out there for whoever wants to engage it. The study of history is by nature filled with dates and names, and that's where many would-be students find their eyes rolling toward the back of their heads in utter boredom. While dates and names can't be avoided, This podcast aims at providing a narrative of church history to help contemporary Christians connect to their roots. To use a well-worn cliche, we really do stand on the shoulders of giants. What we'll see 
is that those giants themselves stand on previous generations who loom large because of the lives they lived and what they accomplished. Hopefully, by discerning our place within that massive edifice that we call the church, we can faithfully provide firm shoulders for the next generation to stand on. That isn't an unfitting analogy when you consider both the Apostle Paul's and Peter's allusion to the church being a building made of living stones. I just said that Communio Sanctorum is aimed primarily at contemporary Christians. A bit surprising to me is the number of non-Christians who've enjoyed the podcast. Many interested in history and wanting to fill out a gap in their knowledge on church history have expressed their appreciation. As we end this first episode, let me give a quick review on how I'll be presenting this history of Christianity in the church. There are many ways to study history and many theories for interpreting the past. One way to recount history is to divide it into the pre-modern, modern, and post-modern eras. While defining these categories could develop into a whole podcast in itself, let me just quickly summarize. In pre-modern times, history was propaganda. It was recorded to promote some agenda, usually of the ruler who commissioned it. You may have heard the saying that it's the winners who write history. That's pretty much the way the recording of pre-modern history was. Records that painted an alternative view of the officially sanctioned story were often rounded up and destroyed. Divergent monuments were torn down, scrolls burned, to erase the evidence of a substitute view of the way that things went down. In the modern telling of history, a more scientific approach is applied to recording and interpreting events. The winners still dominate the main tale, but the voices of the defeated and the despised are also considered. While the modern scientific approach to history is more accurate than the pre-modern version, it's not entirely free from bias in that the modern historian still has to speak of events from his or her cultural perspective, and the selection of what facts to report or neglect is itself a form of editorial bias. The postmodern approach to history is largely a cynical method based on the idea that truth, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder, or in this case, the mouth of the teller and pen of the writer. The problem in describing postmodernism is that it's a philosophy still under construction and resists definition. Some postmodernists would say that postmodernism is an amorphous paradigm. The moment you define it, you've said more what it's not than what it is. The postmodern view of history is that nearly all accepted history from both the pre-modern and modern eras is suspect precisely because it's accepted. There's a visceral and knee-jerk rejection of authority in postmodernism, and nothing is deemed so authoritarian as tradition. As a consequence, postmodern views of history tend to be avant-garde and fringe theories that one reads alongside a more traditional view. Our approach here will be from a modern perspective, and while it's impossible to be entirely free of bias, I will try to provide an unfiltered review of the history of Christianity and the Church. A bibliography of the books and sources I use in researching is available on the sanctorum.us website. Oh, and here's something I found fascinating. People have left comments on the iTunes portal page labeling me with all kinds of different religious affiliations. Some are convinced I'm a Roman Catholic, others that I'm Eastern Orthodox, some that I'm a five-point Calvinist, a few that I was a raving Arminianist, 
<laughs> While the majority of comments have given the podcast high marks, there is some confusion over where I line up theologically. No matter how much I try to dragnet it and just report the facts, ma'am, it's inevitable that my doctrinal bias is going to color the material. When I do move from reportage to opinion or analysis, well, I'll do my best to mark it off as my opinion. If you're curious who I am and what my theological position is, you can find that on the sanctorum.us website. Go to Lance's bio page. I want to say many thanks to Lemuel Dees, a longtime subscriber and voiceover artist who's provided the Communio Sanctorum intros and outros, and to Dade Ronan at Win It Web for massive help in setting up the new website. I want to say thanks as well to Roberto Aguayo for translating the episodes into Spanish, and to John Para for the intro and outro for the Spanish edition of Communio Sanctorum. There's a final announcement I need to share as we close. To date, CS has been a labor of love that I was able to accommodate fairly easily financially. But as the podcast has grown, it requires a lot more bandwidth, and the costs for hosting the audio files have risen dramatically to outstrip my ability to sustain. So though I am loath to do so, I've had to add a donation feature to the CS page. Communio Sanctorum is free, but over the years, several have asked if they could make a donation. I didn't have a way to do that before, but now I do. So hey, if you want to, now you have a way to. And enough said. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.